Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Stephen Verapin to tell us all about his new book published by Berlin titled The Wisest Fool, The Lavish Life of James VI and First. Um, so for those who are less aware, this is the time to go look up some basic facts. James VI and the First of Scotland and England, uh, the first king of both of the countries. This is I thought a really interesting biography because there's all sorts of stories running around um, even to this day about this particular monarch um, and a deep dive into the real facts and information paints something of a different story from some of these myths. So Stephen, thank you so much for being with us to help us bust some of these false ideas and give us a better picture of this particular historical person. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into the biography, however, would you mind telling us a little bit about your biography, introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this? Yes, no problem. I teach currently at Strathclyde University, English literature, actually not history, but my PhD was interdisciplinary. So it was looking at Elizabethan slander and sedition. So I was focused very much then on the Elizabethan period. But As you'll probably know, there's always a bit of overlap with what came before and what came after. And I thought, God, there's something interesting about James and when he came to the throne after Elizabeth and what that meant for, in terms of my PhD, the law and legal development. But as a person as well and as a monarch, I thought there's still quite a lot to say here. And the more I began to research him, the more I found that sometimes quite a lot of the same stories were being told over and over again. And I thought, what is the truth here? Or can we get at the truth? So that led me into a deep dive on James and his wife, Anna. Actually, I became interested in both what they were up to, what their policies were, what their goals were, all of that sort of stuff. And I found, I hope, some really interesting things. Well, we're going to get into them now. So thank you for that wonderful foundation. I thought it was really interesting that you started the book talking about how James wanted to be perceived. Um, because often we think about kind of, oh, well, what do different people say and what has history remembered of them? But of course, they have some idea and agency in trying to shape that legacy. So I thought that was a good starting point for the interview as well. How did he want to be perceived and why didn't that happen? Yeah, well, first of all, why it didn't happen. I think James has been almost a victim of history. And actually, this is where my PhD was really useful because he's become a victim of literary development at the time as well. Throughout Elizabeth's reign and then really towards the end of it and early in James's reign, there was this flowering of seditious, slanderous, scurrilous libel. The nobility powerful figures were having things written about them, negative things cast about in the streets. It became almost a a mode of literary production. So James was almost unfortunate that at that particular time, 
in, in his life this was going on, this um really bad mouthing of the famous and the powerful, he became I would say a victim of that and we see that in his popular image. I mean if you ask someone to think of James, they will probably think of the slobbering fool, the the wisest fool, actually he was nicknamed by Sir Anthony Weldon. And it's unfair. I mean, the equivalent would be if some of the lurid descriptions of Elizabeth I in her dotage were the way that we think of her all the time. And we don't. With Elizabeth, we don't. We are quite comfortable with her earlier representations, the iconography of her at her peak, all of that sort of stuff. With James, we are stuck with this really negative view of him in his old age. And as you say, it's not how he wanted to be perceived. What he wanted to be perceived as was, I think, foremost a, a dynastic patriarch. That was his big selling point. After that, I would say a universal peacemaker. He was extremely keen on grasping that role. And thirdly, I think what he really wanted was to be seen as the architect of a unitary Great Britain. That was his sort of major pet project. Hmm. Definitely not how he's remembered in a lot of senses. Um, so very interesting starting point. And I think the point um, about kind of how famous people were treated at that particular time is really important. But I think at least I learned from the biography that there are some elements of James himself that kind of doesn't lend itself well to this goal he had. And in fact, one of the things that you say about him is that James was, quote, entirely the wrong monarch for a strictly political assessment and perhaps from a strictly sort of political history one. Why do you think that that's the case? It's interesting because in looking at some of the older biographies of James, I mean, Victorian, Edwardian, really for quite a big chunk of the 20th century as well, there has been a drive to give these strictly political assessments. Now, I think there are reasons for that, and I think one of the reasons was his sexuality, which has more recently come under scrutiny. James is what we would now call very actively bisexual, but he wouldn't have recognised that label at all because it didn't exist at the time. But because of that fluid sexuality that he had, I think a lot of scholars in the past have been keen to downplay his personal relationships, you know, almost as drawing a veil over it and trying to look at things strictly politically. What were the political effects of his friendships or however they were written about? And it doesn't work for James particularly. I mean, it doesn't work for any early modern monarch, really, because whether they had friendships, whether they had love affairs, there were massive political ramifications for anyone to do this because... If you were the lover of the monarch, the best friend of the monarch, you had high levels of access and influence. And this is what politicians were desperate for. It's what they were fighting for. James especially is almost notorious for lavishing not just affection on people that he fell for or became very good friends with as well, but giving them office, giving them political office, giving them power. So it's almost impossible in James's case to really extricate the politics from the personal. Uh, and it's the way he governed. The way he governed was inherently personal, not just 
handing favours and offices to uh, lovers. But if he didn't like you as a person, he almost kind of cut you off. You had no chance of, of gaining political power. The big example there would be Walter Raleigh. At the outset of his English reign, James had been warned off. Walter Raleigh had been told not to trust him and it stuck and it meant that Raleigh's political power completely plummeted. He ended up going on trial. He ended up being imprisoned for over a decade and it's because James had no personal relationship with him. On the other hand, those that he did have a personal relationship with, no matter what they did, he would turn a blind eye. He would pardon them. He would really make life much easier for them. So James governed in a way in both kingdoms that was just inherently personal. It gave rise to lots of criticism in Scotland uh, and in England, actually. And there's a phrase that always annoys me a bit, actually, that's usually aimed at Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's that, oh, she ruled from the heart, not the head. And if you look at the historiography, that accusation was really being made about James, particularly in, in the 1570s and 1580s, than it was about Mary at any point in her personal rule. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, and I think a lot of those themes, a lot of those ideas about kind of rewarding the favourites, no matter what they did and that sort of thing, um, will be helpful to keep in mind as we now go through, I think, a bit chronologically through his life. Um yeah, lovely. So then the obvious place to start with is James as a child. Um, and for anyone uh, who doesn't know about Mary, Queen of Scots, this might be a good time to pause and look up some basics about her before coming back. Uh, because James's childhood was really heavily about everything against Mary, Queen of Scots. You, you talk about in the book how he was raised to be against his mother, against Catholicism and against France. That's a pretty intensive kind of educational goal for a young child. To what extent was it successful, this program of upbringing that he had? Uh, well, I suppose if you look at what the uh, main educator, George Buchanan, was trying to do, then not very, it wasn't very successful at all. Now, that's a bit glib because... James's education under Buchanan, who was a leading continental scholar, was exhaustive. I mean, Latin, he, he claimed he was taught Latin before he was taught Scots. Uh, Latin, uh, foreign languages, classics, history, all of this stuff, rhetoric, logic. He had the big Renaissance education, which he was always very proud of. I mean, he, that took, that succeeded extremely well. But... As you point out there, yes, he was also taught to despise his mother, to fear his mother, to despise his dynasty, fear it, to almost kind of distrust the concept of monarchy, which you would think is strange because he was the king from a very early age. What we can really see if we look at his education is that it was an experiment, basically. It was an experiment in a Calvinist tutor or preceptor, as he was called, really trying to model or create this perfect Protestant prince. What he imbued him with was, or tried rather to imbue him with, was this idea of classical republicanism, really, or the idea that the monarch is subject to the people, not the other way around. That did not work. How do we know it didn't work? Because James would end up 
really finding solace in the opposite view. Not only was he fascinated by his family, interested in his mother, he also really pushed the idea that as king, he was divinely appointed. As king, he was absolutely in control. He would have really taken against the idea. He did really take against the idea of Buchanan that the monarch or the sovereign was subject to the people. James thought the complete opposite. He almost found refuge in the complete opposite. And my assumption, I think, is, well, there's a lot of, as, as you know, there was a lot of conflict and there was a lot of factionalism and a lot of difficulty in James's youth. One way I think he coped with it was taking refuge in this idea that he was above it all. He was the monarch. That was the, the kind of be-all and end-all of his position. He was in charge. Mm. And it's certainly interesting um, thinking about the later history of the Stuarts, his children, um, yes, yes, thinking indeed. about their beliefs on absolute monarchy and where yes. that takes them. That's um, a lot to answer for there. Yeah, exactly. So I think we can definitely say that uh, George Buchanan's goals there did not um, find much root. Um, but you do talk about that there were some older male influences in James's younger life that did have, um, he, he was quite receptive to, and their ideas were quite influential. So can we talk a bit about Esme Stewart um, and kind of the ways in which that relationship was formative for James? Yes, indeed. This is one of those famous or infamous relationships, which, again, is talked about quite a lot in biographies. But one thing I noticed as I was reading it is the age difference between them. So Esme, as James's older cousin, French-educated, was in his late 30s. James was 12 when Esme came to Scotland. And he was about 13 when a, a really strong relationship grew between them, which led to howls of disapproval from the uh, Calvinist Kirk about how vice-ridden the court had become since Esme had seduced James. Now, because of the age difference, what really interested me was a similar thing had happened with Elizabeth I and Thomas Seymour. I'm sure people will know that story. That relationship is today looked at, I think, rightly as an abusive one. We'd now call it grooming, where he was trying to take advantage of the younger Elizabeth. And I think it's really interesting that something very similar happened to James at about the same age with a man of about the same age as Seymour had been. James was seduced by this. Um, whether he presumably, about 12, 13, was aware that he was interested in men. And Esme seems to have realised this and encouraged him and really sort of, um, again, I'll use the modern word grooming, but I suppose at the time it would have been expected that someone in Esme's position would take advantage of, of the king no matter what age he was. How did it affect James? How did it sort of form his character? This is another thing that, again, has been touched on by historians in the past. And even those very sympathetic to James have, have kind of implied, oh, this made James interested in men, which I think is a, a bit problematic, I would say. Uh, he, he was interested in men, that's just the way he was. What I think it did to James, though, was really cement the idea that 
his romantic feelings, so his sexual feelings I'm, he was just born with. But I think his romantic feelings would, throughout his life, really be shaped by this relationship. Not in the sense that he was looking again for replacement Esme Stewart's replacement older men. He wasn't. But throughout his life later on, he was constantly looking for younger people, men and women, whom he could adopt the role of Esme himself with. He was looking for someone to guide, for someone to love. I think that there's something almost kind of sad that James, he was constantly on the lookout for love, but it was a very one-sided kind of love. It was he was a very, um, I call him, I think, emotionally needy, which we see in his later relationships. But what he needed was someone that he could nurture, someone that he could teach and instruct. Again, someone that fulfilled this fantasy of family life that, again, I think probably sprang out of him being taught as a child to hate his family and fear his family. Hmm. And back to the idea of being the patriarch, not just yeah, having yeah. a family, but being the head of it, right? Absolutely. And defining yeah. what it was and how everyone interacted. So speaking then of those relationships and his attempts to create this family for himself, um, I think this is probably a good point to bring in Anna of Denmark, um, who he obviously marries and is his queen. So what was he looking for we have some idea if you've just described of kind of what he was looking for emotionally from a marriage but thinking a bit more broadly what were the benefits for him of not just any marriage but specifically with Anna of Denmark and to what extent did his hopes for this marriage um did he actually get what he wanted from it well what I would say is sticking with the emotional point just for a second he did I think really hope to find a woman that he could love and lavish affection on and instruct and teach and all of that. In that, he was disappointed because Anna proved to be far too independently minded for a patriarch like James. But there were other, I suppose, more material benefits. I mean, in the 1580s, there were really two roads to the altar for James. One of them was a match with uh, Catherine of Navarre. The other was with one of the daughters of Denmark. The downside of a French match would have been that Scotland risked being dragged into France's most constant religious wars, which it couldn't afford. James was deeply in debt, always. On the other hand, Denmark looked like a good bet because there were mercantile links that could be played up. It was a match with Denmark. There were, I suppose... um, ideas of prestige. I mean, the Danish crown offered a great deal of prestige, which James was always interested in. One of the things that is not really talked about enough is how much he and Anna, when he married her, were really keen to raise up the Scottish crown, which had fallen into, I guess, disrepute over the years, particularly with Mary Queen of Scots being forced to abdicate. But I guess it's also true that, well, Anna of Denmark came from a large family, there was the idea that she was going to be fertile and that was the number one goal of any royal marriage in the period was to create successors, create an heir to the throne, hopefully a spare or spares to the throne. Mm. And what was attractive to Anna and her family about this match with James? What did they want to get out of it? Well, that's a really interesting question because Anna's father, Frederick II, was 
an interesting man, a supposedly hard drinking, very um, outgoing man. He was interested in a match for his daughter with James, but he had a real bugbear about the Orkney and Shetland Islands, which had been pawned to Scotland in the previous century. He wanted those back. That was his goal of matching uh, one of his daughters, originally Elizabeth, but later Anna, with James. Was, Marry my daughter and we can form a treaty by which you will hand back the islands. James, obviously, like any other early modern monarch, was not keen to hand over territory. So the marriage proposal really sort of bobbed and sank for years over this. And that only disappeared when Frederick II died and his wife, the Dowager Queen Sophie, took over negotiations. Her overriding goal, I think, was to match her daughter with a king. That was, uh, it was about prestige. She really wanted Anna to be matched, not with a duke or any sort of princeling, but with a reigning king. And James offered that. And it's I don't think any accident that once Frederick died, the marriage was very quickly organised, arranged, and then took place. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Once they were married, however... Um, I was really fascinated to read about kind of the number of different people and for a quite prolonged amount of time that really tried to drive a wedge between James and Anna, that tried to create issues between them, etc. Why and kind of with what impact were they trying to do this? Yes, I know exactly what you mean, Miranda, because I read the book again last... I wrote the book, obviously, but then I read it again last week you know just to so, ahead of it being published i thought god i better read this thing and make sure i still like it and chapter after chapter of the reign in scotland i was thinking god this really was tough on them it was constant constant factional infighting people spreading rumors about them people trying to divide the king from the new queen it almost just seemed endless you think god did these people ever live in peace at any point and why was that the case well i think that the great fear in scotland that we really need to recognize in this period at least amongst the reformed or those of the reformed religion was resurgent catholicism there was a great fear that oh, there's a catholic hiding under every rock there's constantly going to be um, some sort of catholic plot and to be fair there were a few catholic plots what this really resulted in was almost a kind of divide and rule approach on the part of the nobility. They ultimately wanted access to James, the king. Anna could get in the way and there was a perception that she was very sympathetic to Catholics and that might be a way of dividing them, getting to James, stirring up trouble. If you split up the royal couple, you're essentially allowing yourself to get access to the one of them that you want to gain access to, which is the King, James. And it did result in constant fighting, constant divisions, constant feuds. And it's interesting to read about, but you do sometimes think, God, that must have been a very unsettled life to lead on both of their parts. 
Mm. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I was thinking reading this is like, wait, hang on. It's not just the beginning. It keeps going. Yes, wow. never. You, yeah, I was reading it and I was thinking, you've got to think there's going to be some sunshine around the corner. Nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in fact, it's that point about Catholics I'd love to ask you a bit more about, um, because I hadn't really been, obviously, the Stuarts are somewhat infamous, especially the later ones, um, for their relationship with Catholics. Um, it's kind of a constant problem. But I hadn't really realized how much Anna was involved in that too, in, in some ways. So she was friends with a bunch of Catholics. There were these fears about her maybe secretly being Catholic. How can we understand her relationships with prominent Catholics, both as Queen of Scotland and then, of course, as Queen of Scotland and England? How might we think about this? This is interesting to me because the question of her Catholicism has, for decades now, almost seemed settled. You can read one of the very, very few biographies of, of Anna, there haven't been that many, um, and they will state she converted to Catholicism as if it's an absolutely established fact. I am not all that convinced that she converted to Catholicism. What I would see is that she was, as you say, sympathetic to Catholics. She had a lot of Catholic friends. And in some ways this makes sense because one of the problems that James and Anna faced in Scotland was that although she was raised Lutheran and as far as I as far as I believe stayed Lutheran and James was raised Calvinist, this did not safeguard them against attacks from Protestants. The Kirk, the Scottish Church, was really growing sympathetic to Presbyterianism. And the problem there was that, well, even the Protestant king and queen they're never going to be Protestant enough. There were. Uh, it makes me really sympathise actually with Mary Queen of Scots. Mary managed to reign in Scotland, reformed Scotland for several years despite being a Catholic. She was being constantly attacked for her Catholicism, of course. But then if you look at James and Anna, they were constantly being attacked even though they were Protestant. So there was... A, Really kind of no winning, I suppose, unless you bowed entirely to the Kirk. So Anna sympathised with these Catholics, I think, because they were more lively, they were more fun, they were not constantly critiquing her and attacking her, whereas some of the more fiery Presbyterian ministers were busy saying things like, all royalty are devil's children, um, they were criticising her for her night walking and bawling. So, I mean, she was very young as well. She was 15 when she married James and then came to Scotland. I think it's really understandable that she would find much better company amongst these Catholic noblewomen than she did amongst dour Presbyterian-minded Kirk ministers who were constantly criticising her. Mm. Yeah, the, the Kirk doesn't seem to have made many friends. Um, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So I think that answer in a lot of ways explains why James tried to be, quote, all things to all men in matters of religion. Um, as you said, there's kind of no way of winning, right? Um, can you talk about that 
obviously because it's not just the Kirk in Scotland. He then becomes King of England, and that's a whole another religious kettle of fish, really. So how does he try and maintain this sort of caught-in-the-middle policy when he becomes King of England, and how does that go? Well, I think the first thing to say about James and religion is that he was, always would be, a very committed Calvinist. Confessionally, he was a Calvinist. That was his his belief. But even in England, especially in his early years in England, you'll find a lot of material, a lot of libelous things being written saying, oh, he's a secret Catholic and his queen is a secret Catholic and they are listening to secret Catholic masses. It was all mischief making. But in some ways, James had made a rod for his own back because during the 1590s particularly, his driving obsession, I think, was making himself acceptable to the English, making the path to the English throne as smooth as possible. What he and Anna, and I think they were working together in this, did was really try and show themselves as sympathetic to Catholics, sympathetic to, sorry, not just sympathetic to Protestants, but confessionally Protestant whilst being sympathetic to Catholics. Why were they doing this? It was to try and minimise any potential Catholic resistance to their succession in England, which is what they were united in wanting. It did come back and bite them, though, when they were um, in England, when they had gained the English throne. In the short term, people were accusing them of being Catholic, but then within a few years, the Catholics, whom they had made kind of loose promises of toleration to, realised that they weren't going to benefit materially from James and Anna having gained the throne, and that led to the gunpowder plot. So religion, as you say, was this difficult thing to negotiate. What drove James, and I think this drove him throughout his reign in England, was trying to promote a universal peace in religion. His big goal, which was kind of chimeric, was that he wanted to unite all the various Protestant sects or denominations together as a prelude to then making some sort of peace or accord with the Roman Church. That was his idea. I th- And you understand this, I think, more from looking at his reign in Scotland. All the difficulties that we talked about, all the factionalism feuding, He'd had enough of conflict, I think, when he came to England. What he wanted was peace. Understandably, it's a a noble goal. But in terms of religion, peace, toleration were things that couldn't last in that that particular period in time. If you were an extreme Puritan, you didn't want to tolerate Catholics. If you were a Catholic, a Jesuit particularly, a really crusading Catholic you didn't want to tolerate Puritans or Protestants. So he had a noble goal, I think, in this universal peace, but it was the wrong time for it. It wasn't going to happen. Hmm. I think that's very clear and, again, goes back to that thing we talked about at the beginning of kind of his vision for himself and what he was doing versus what everyone else was thinking um, and the kind of idea of the, I'm going to be the figure of peace that brings them together. He also wanted to officially unite England and Scotland um, and that didn't seem sort of surprised that no one else was very excited about that idea. <laughs> yes, on both sides of the border, no one wanted it. And I think from the 
English perspective in terms of this union that James proposed as his pet union project, what he really wanted and what he meant by it was anglicising Scotland. You, you get this from his claims that, well, he was never particularly happy with a, a keeping Presbyterian Kirk. What he wanted was for the Scottish Kirk to basically accord with the English church. He was a very big fan of the, the Anglican church and he wanted that spread north of the border. He wanted the English common law spread north of the border. And I know it's for a long time it's been said in, in a lot of books that James's view of union was... Uh, far-sighted because it came true in 1707 it, it didn't even the treaty of union yeah even the treaty of union in 1707 did not go as far as james's view of union from the english perspective there was a lot of anti-scottish xenophobia there were a lot of railing libels and verses accusing the scots of being beggars <laughs> blue-capped beggars seemed to be a, a favorite insult uh, and there were also worries I think probably specious worries that if James got his way and this grand union came to be, this unitary Great Britain, it would somehow nullify all the laws of England, all the ancient laws of England, all the parliamentary statutes of England would suddenly, with the stroke of a pen, just be undone because England would no longer exist. Yeah, so anyone thinking about current politics between England and Scotland um, and in Great Britain more widely, a lot of these fears might sound familiar. Um, which is a very interesting sort of parallel to draw. Um, but moving from the tricky legal questions and the tricky religious questions, I'd like to add another tricky set of relationships into this um, because we've not talked about it a lot. Um, one of the difficulties in James and Anna's marriage is, as you said, what, what was the phrase? Active bisexuality earlier? Um, he was having rather a number of affairs, generally with men, and it was not particularly subtle. Yes, and what's interesting, which I really hadn't realised until I was writing the book and working on the book, was for the bulk of his marriage to Anna, so from 1590 onwards in Scotland, there are no reports of affairs, bar one with a woman, Anne Murray, it was only when he came to England that his um, attraction to men seemed to really re-energise, possibly because he was surrounded by a whole bunch of new, young, attractive men who were falling over themselves to try and gain his favour. And so, yes, on coming to England, that apparent um, faithfulness to Anna evaporated and it does look like he began indulging in some quite a lot of jaunts to the countryside with his boon companions but she doesn't seem to have bothered overly these young men came and went they were promoted they were married off it wasn't until Robert Carr the notorious Robert Carr came into his life that Anna really seems to have almost been shut out to have realised that this time it's serious this time he's um not just having an affair with this young man, but this young man is disrespectful. He's not treating her, the Queen, with appropriate deference and all of that sort of stuff. So this is really the first affair with Robert Carr um, where she really noticeably seems to have taken umbrage. And 
what effect did her unhappiness and her dislike of this have? On James, not a bit. <laughs> not a bit. That is one of the, the kind of sad things. Uh, James does seem to have loved Anna, if not in terms of passion or anything like that, definitely in very, very deep affection. But with Carr, he really seems to have not given much thought to her feelings at all. If anything, they slightly exasperated him. One of the saddest things, I think, is when their oldest son, Prince Henry, died. There are reports of Anna mourning alone, well, not alone, but with her ladies without James, and James locking himself up with Carr to mourn. So it was. Uh, I think she was very happy when Carr uh, fell from power. Um, people know that story. It was very, uh, very infamous. Before Carr really got into trouble, got into legal trouble, for some time it appears that he had lost interest in James. There, James wrote a very revealing letter to Carr in which he specifically noted, you're long creeping back from lying in his bed. Um, the problem was that Carr married. Now, ordinarily in his relationships with young men, James was quite happy to let them out. He would arrange marriages for them. It was fine because the assumption was that they would continue dancing attendance on him, the king. What Carr seems to have done is almost committed the unforgivable sin of actually falling in love with his wife and he started spending his time with her, really becoming interested in her. Unfortunately, she was Frances Howard, who had been Countess of Essex before James arranged the divorce so she could marry Carr. She is known to history as a murderess because she was almost certainly a murderess. She organised for Carr's former friend Overbury to be poisoned in the Tower of London because he had objected to the, the marriage between um, herself and Carr. So when James really started becoming annoyed at Carr, busily off loving his wife, a faction developed which intended to substitute someone else in the King's affections, and that was George Villiers, who became Duke of Buckingham. Anna was quite happy for this, for I think the simple reason Villiers, unlike Carr, treated her with enormous respect, really deferred to her, built a, a friendship with her. I, it sounds strange to us, but it clearly worked for them as, as a royal family. Villiers was almost inducted into the royal family, which is what James had always wanted, this big, loving, extended family. Um, that he could not have been happier that his, his new lover was actually almost best friends with his wife. Again, seems very strange, but uh, it worked. And Carr, thankfully, or not thankfully from his perspective, I suppose, wasn't just out in the cold, but when the Overbury murder came out, he and his countess were tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, and then James, being James, pardoned them both, but they were under house arrest, so they were out of the picture. Mm. And what was the popular perception of James's affairs? That's a very good question, because it differed. I mean, from the political perspective, I don't think politicians, for example cared very much 
that James was having affairs, uh, so sexual affairs with men. What they cared about was that those affairs had political ramifications. So Buckingham, for example, became unpopular for being corrupt and for um, gathering to himself all these offices and all these um, perquisites and things like that. So the objection there was political. More widely, there was a lot of really scandalous stuff written, not just on uh, James's affairs, but on supposedly the idea that um, if he's having sex with men, then what other kind of vices is he indulging in? Because that was how the early modern mind worked, I think, is there were associations to be made. One vice leads to another. So there were accusations, horrible accusations made against James that he was a child molester, that um, he had all these little boys that he was abusing. really homophobic stuff, I think you'd call it now, where because it was known that he was having these affairs with men, he must be doing all sorts of other terrible, terrible things. Another follow-on from that was the idea that he, he was somehow effeminate and cowardly because of his uh, male romances, which again, I think, was probably more to do with the fact that he was anti-war and pacifist. So it became a kind of shorthand, a way of criticising his relationships with men and the supposed effeminacy and degeneracy of his court was really a way of just saying he's he's not going to war when we should be at war. But in a lot of ways, almost those criticisms could have been made whether or not he was seen to have sort of sexual involvement with these men. You know, it sounds like in this environment, he would have been criticised for having favourites and promoting people, whether or not there was a sexual element, right? He would have been criticised for not going, for not wanting war, whether or not he was also having affairs with men, right? These criticisms, going back to that point of kind of, he couldn't win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I suppose we have to remember is some of this stuff was coming from the continent as well. Some of these scandalous books and, and libels and verses and things, it was coming from people that had absolutely no idea how far he did or did not go in the bedroom with his uh, male lovers. They, they, didn't, they couldn't possibly know that, but they would write these things anyway. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about sort of how famous people were treated at this moment. Um, we've talked a bit about war and sort of the continent. So let's bring that international relations element in. And when you talk about this in the book, you call James, quote, a good king at the wrong time, especially in terms of foreign policy. Can you take us through that? Um, yes, this is particularly towards the end of his reign. One thing I think we should point out is James lived on until 1625. Now, for a, the majority of his time in England, he had kept the country peaceful, stable. He had avoided falling into war, entangling England in, in foreign wars particularly, so he'd done well. He hadn't faced any noble rebellions or anything like that, which every one of the Tudor monarchs had faced, sometimes multiple. So he had done well. What happened towards the end of his reign was conflict in Europe broke out, which um, his daughter Elizabeth and her husband were very much tied up in. So this is um, 
Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, and her husband, the Elector Palatine, when they became embroiled in what would become the Thirty Years' War, James's long peace policy, which had worked, as I said, it had worked for, for a long time, it just began to look untenable. He was put in a really almost impossible position where he wanted to continue being the arbiter of peace. He wanted to keep England again out of this conflict. It would turn out to be one of the bloodiest conflicts in European history. But it really was fighting a losing battle. I think there was no way towards the end of his reign that he could keep his hands clean, as it were, that he could um, keep England out of this. It certainly didn't help that the people of England, again, by the people of England, I mean Parliament, actually, which obviously doesn't represent everyone, but there was a huge war party in Parliament that was clamouring for some sort of conflict. And what they would do is... um, almost mythologise the past, mythologise the days of Elizabeth when England had been at war with Spain and there was a a great glorifying of the Armada, the days of the Armada when England supposedly was ruling the seas and all of this sort of stuff. And James was increasingly looking out of date. Nowadays, I think, we'd say, of course he should have kept uh, England and Scotland out of this continental religious war and territorial war peace we now accept is is a good thing peace is a good thing but if we look at that particular historical moment peace was out of fashion i mean it's incredible because when james had first came to the throne one of the selling points was he was going to end the war with spain it had been rumbling on since 1585 it had been costing england millions he was going to put an end to that. It could establish better trading relations with Europe by being at peace all this. And then <laughs> over a decade later, it wasn't, wasn't war great. We should, be, we should go back to war. Mm. Very tricky thing if your whole goal is to unite the countries, have peace, make everyone um, tolerate each other's religion. <laughs> it certainly didn't help that his son Charles became best friends with his lover Buckingham, and the pair of them became born-again warmongers for trying to convince James to, to join this war. It's a very famous quote from James, would you, would you have me go to Spain in my twilight years? Sorry, would you have me break with Spain and go to war in my twilight years? Right, and of course That's Charles... exactly what they wanted. Yeah, Charles was like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, which is not exactly what an old um, dying monarch wants to hear from. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So not the happiest end to James's life then. Um, but thankfully, the book, more happily for you, I imagine, is done. So he might not have been happy at the end, um, but I sure, I'm sure you are, that it's off your plate. People well, can yes, read it. but I have to say, I kind of missed him at the end. I, I <laughs> Stephen, I started researching that and writing. I had a very, very negative opinion of James. I was really biased by everything I've read in the past against him. And I thought, God, what a horrible, horrible, unlikable man he was. And then the more I researched it and wrote it, the more I sort of thought, oh, I, what a sad man, what an un, you know, kind of likable man. He he would tell terrible jokes and he, he was very 
almost endearing. So by the end of it, I was like, oh, he's, he's died. <laughs> I felt bad <laughs> writing that final chapter. I mean, surely you knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming, but uh, it still disappointed me because it was such a, a sad and mysterious ending. In fact, that's one thing I didn't mention. The, um, but probably timely, I think, because there's a new series coming out about Buckingham and James with uh, Julianne Moore playing Mary Villiers and I think it's going to play up the uh, the claim that Buckingham and Charles murdered James at the end which has been put forward by some people uh, which I do talk about in the book about whether there's any veracity to this idea that the pair of them plotted to kill James no <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no. It was, it was at the time and in the years afterwards in in this seventeenth uh, century, it was claimed. So it's it's not just something that's been made up in the last twenty thirty years or anything like that. It is a historical claim that they had poisoned James. But when you start to dig into it, you start to see it was all again propaganda that was being put about. It was being put about because Buckingham was unpopular and then it was up a bit about Charles during the Civil Wars. Yeah, very, you know, you're you're going to get a lot of negative propaganda about someone whose head you've just dropped off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have to think as well, did anyone in those days die and have that death not result in accusations of poisoning? Yeah, exactly. It's really common. So, <laughs> yeah, no, there definitely is that. Um I wonder if I might ask a final question. Obviously, we've gotten to James, the end of his life. So by definition, the biography ends there as well. Um, it's really interesting to hear kind of how you change your perspective on him having written this. Do you have any thoughts about what you might work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's a biography that you'd like to share with us? Well, that's a really good question and uh, another very timely one because I was asked to put together some ideas for potential future biographies. So I have a few and I think, um, well, I'm hoping that I will either go back to a certain point in Mary Queen of Scots' life or uh, another option is someone that features in the James biography. But I feel... I just didn't have enough time to really dig into. And that's Cecil, uh, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. I Again, someone that, in a lot of fiction, actually, in a lot of historical fiction, he's always a villain. He's always this sneaky, serpentine spy master. And when I was working on the James biography, that's not the, that's not the historical figure that I met. So I'm, I'm hoping or, or considering at least that he might be worth a biography of his own. One that isn't a joint biography with his father, because there's plenty of those and his father, Burley, always steals the spotlight. Right, of course, yeah. Well, that that given kind of the trajectory with James of here are these myths, got a bit of bias, hang on, perking in at the actual information reveals a different picture. It sounds like that might be a... Um, something that happens with your next book as well. So we will keep an eye out for that. But of course, while you are investigating, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, The Wisest Fool, The Lavish Life of James VI and First, just published um, by Berlin. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Miranda. I really appreciate it.